Hello and welcome to Sonnet Cast, William Shakespeare Sonnets, recited, revealed and relived. I am Sebastian Michael and this is Sonnet 30. When to the sessions of sweet silent thought I summon up remembrance of things past, I sigh the lack of many a thing I sought, and with old woes new wail my dear time's waste. Then can I drown an eye unused to flow, for precious friends hid in death's stateless night, and weep afresh love's long since cancelled woe, and moan the expense of many a vanished sight. Then can I grieve at grievances foregone, and heavily from woe to woe tell all the sad account of forbemoaned moan, which I knew pain, as if not paid before. But if the while I think on thee, dear friend, all losses are restored, and sorrow Sonnet 30 picks up on the theme of Sonnet 29 and develops the sweet love remembered there into a reminiscence about lost love, missed opportunity and failed aspirations, among which again it is the thought of the young man that has the power here not so much to simply perhaps lift the spirit and therefore the state of mind and heart, but to restore the losses suffered and to end the sorrows they have brought, to, in essence, heal. What does it actually mean? When to the sessions of sweet silent thought I summon up remembrance of things past, when I ponder my life and remember things that have happened in the past. Most editors point out that sessions and summon are legal terms whereby sessions refers to court sessions and summon to the calling of witnesses. Shakespeare often uses reference from the world of law and finance in his poems, and this here is no doubt the case, and also deliberate. Perhaps noteworthy too, though, is that William Shakespeare speaks of these sessions as ones of sweet, silent thought, which really rather characterises them in a quite particular and not entirely negative nor overly formal way, and thus from the outset distinguishes this poem from the previous one, which at first glance appears very similar in its content, and which it is also without doubt connected to. By calling them these sessions, Shakespeare implies that they are a regular feature, if not of life generally, then certainly of his life, which is perhaps unsurprising considering Shakespeare's particular lifestyle, which in turn is characterised by long extended absence from his family at home in Stratford and by sporadic but painful separations from his young lover in London. 
and by describing them as sessions of sweet, silent thought, he also implies that there is something lovely, pleasurable, perhaps even indulgent about these moments of solitude and reflection, maybe a melancholy nostalgia that is not entirely unpleasant. What seems to be largely absent here is the despair and dejection of the previous sonnets, which would appear to signal a much more purely reflective mode, and also maybe a mode that is reconciled to the reality of existence, which must, by necessity, entail loss. I sigh the lack of many a thing I sought. I regret or feel sorry about the fact that many things I sought or wished to achieve have not materialised, in contemporary language, we would expect an about here after sigh to make the line clear. I sigh about the lack, but that is the meaning. And this line would appear to support, of course, the notion, the impression we received in Sonnet 29, that Shakespeare is unhappy with his career trajectory to date. And with old woes, new wail, my dear time's waste, and with these old woes, things I have dreamt of achieving that I haven't achieved, things I have always wanted and didn't get, I yet again newly complain or even cry about how I have wasted my precious time. Time, we have noted before, is of immense importance to William Shakespeare, and this is only one of many indications we receive throughout these sonnets that he feels his time is running out, even though he can be nowhere near as old by this time as we might be led to believe, going by the words. We have established this just to remind ourselves he must be somewhere between 30 at least and really 40 at most when he writes these sonnets. Then can I drown an eye unused to flow? Then, when I am thinking about these things, can it happen that I well up with tears even though I am not used to crying? The fact that William Shakespeare describes his eye as unused to flow, meaning that it is not in the habit of producing tears, suggests that he usually takes quite a stoic, so not to say hardened or world-weary view of things, and is not that easily moved to tears. For precious friends hid in death's stateless night. For precious friends of mine, who have since passed away and are therefore now hidden in the endless night of death. Friends, here as elsewhere, is possibly ambiguous. Shakespeare later on in this particular sonnet, and on many other occasions, refers to the young man, who is clearly a lover, as his friend. And so whether he here at this point means just good friends or former lovers is not clear. Certainly, as we also mentioned quite a while ago, mortality in London in Shakespeare's day is such that even among his own generation, and indeed that of the young man, there may easily have been several friends of any description who have since died. Now, in Sonnet 14, 
Shakespeare said to the young man that unless he was to produce a son, his end would be both truths and beauties, doom and date. Here now, similarly, date is used to mean final date and therefore termination or end, except, of course, that death, and with it the metaphorical night of death, has no final date. It lasts forever and is therefore dateless. As a marginal, perhaps, or as a footnote to this, Shakespeare does not always and everywhere think of death as dateless. The Christian tradition in which he grew up envisages a judgment day when the dead arise, and in Sonnet 58, for example, he will refer to this directly, saying to the young man there, So, till the judgment that yourself arise, you live in this and dwell in lovers' eyes. But this clearly has no bearing on the meaning and sentiment of this sonnet here, which we are talking about, which is sonnet 30. And weep afresh love's long since cancelled woe. Then, when I am thinking of the past, I can weep again with fresh tears about a love that has long since ended and whose sorrows are therefore long since cancelled and expired. In other words, I can bring up all those feelings of loss and sorrow all over again, even though I have long since convinced myself that I have moved on. And moan the expense of many a vanished sight and at the same time and in the same way i can bemoan the metaphorical expense meaning mostly the emotional effort that has gone into many a sight that has since disappeared what exactly is meant here by sight is not clear or specified but in the context of love's long since cancelled woe above what springs to mind is certainly the sight of a beautiful person whom I may have fancied or pursued. And this is the first, but not the only time, that Shakespeare suggests he has had lovers before and other than the young man. The clearest and most explicit reference to them is yet to come in the next sonnet, Sonnet 31. Then can I grieve at grievances foregone. Then, always and still at that time of reflection, of course, can I newly grieve at the grievances which have foregone because they lie in the past. In other words, I can again wallow to some extent in the pain of being an injured party, be that now in love or in any other matter. And heavily from woe to woe tell all the sad account of four bemoaned moan. And once again, with a heavy heart, give myself or anybody who might be nearby to hear it a blow by blow account of the things I have moaned about possibly many times before. And while woe to woe does have the meaning here, more or less, of a blow-by-blow -blow account, it is almost endearing how Shakespeare here seems to practically mock himself with the repetition of this gravely laden word, woe, which I knew pay, as if not paid before. 
and this account that I give of the sad wrongs I have suffered, I pay it off all over again, as if I had not done so before. This is a particularly clever and enjoyable word play. An account is obviously a telling, or here quite specifically a retelling of a story, but it is also a reckoning or a bill. Shakespeare here first treats it as the former and then switches the meaning to the latter by suggesting he newly pays this bill as if he hadn't done so before. The payment, in inverted commas, is of course a metaphorical one, again in emotion, in pain, in regret, in loss, rather than a financial one executed in money. By once again going through these emotions, he is once again paying this account as if he hadn't done so many times before. And then the final couplet. But if the while I think on thee, dear friend, all losses are restored and sorrows end. But, and in a direct echo of Sonnet 29, here too it is true, if, while I am so engaged in my self-pitying reminiscences, I think of you, my dear friend, then, in an instant, all these losses that I have suffered are as good as restored, and all my sorrows cease immediately, because, by implication, and as we already know from the previous sonnet, you make me so rich and so happy that nothing else matters anymore. Colin Burroughs of the Oxford Shakespeare edition highlights the fact that this is the first sonnet in which William Shakespeare addresses his young lover as dear friend, and also points out that the use of friend to mean a person whom the writer is engaged with in a romantic relationship is certainly well established in poetry at the time. It is this a karma more pensive sonnet than the one it follows, and it feels almost as if I, the poet William Shakespeare, am here taking a step back to listen to myself and ponder the things I've just said, sensing a wry smile tease my lips as I recount now how I, in these moments of thoughtfulness and wistful remembrance, recount my woe. There is an understated playfulness at work with my legalese that is only just introduced and then not further pursued, with the sensory pleasure I take in several resonant alliterations, with the repetitions and rueful enumerations. I, your podcast, Sebastian Michael, not all that long ago wrote William Shakespeare as a character into a playlet that features as part of a short novel called Orlando in the Cities, where, in conversation with Ben Johnson, I made him say about London, it is a place for irony, which I am useless at, a constant knowing contradiction within everything. But here we do get the impression that Shakespeare is perhaps being a little ironic, that he is looking at himself through the prism of a more objective bystander and poking gentle fun at himself. 
Either that, or he is being disarmingly honest in his assessment of his own tendency to self-indulge when left to his own devices. Sonnet 30 is one of my favourite sonnets because it is both multi-layered and simple, artfully crafted and wonderfully direct, and, like so many others, only perhaps even more so, it is utterly relatable. You do not have to be an underappreciated poet of the 16th century to know exactly what Will is talking about. Here he comes across very much as someone who is just like us, or, if I continue to speak for myself, just like me. Looking back in a moment of sweet, silent thought, do I breathe a deep, sigh over things I wish I had achieved or done by now and simply didn't do or couldn't or tried and failed at? Absolutely. Do I look at how fast time has passed and how much of it seems to have been wasted by none other than myself? Indeed I do. Can I who hardly ever cry for or about anything, dissolve in a heap of tears about precious friends who are no longer with us and whose passing I still can never properly comprehend? My eyes well up as I ask the question. Do I need to go through the entire sonnet and confirm each parallel to my own frame of experience? Probably not. You get the gist. Sonnet 30 does not ask many questions, nor does it really answer any, and that may be exactly what makes it so precious as a piece of poetry. It clearly and obviously appears as part of the sequence. It stands on its own, though it relates obviously to the one before and also the one that comes after, and, intelligent and craftily composed as it is, it seems to come straight from the heart. It is a wonder of poetic writing because it is so profoundly personal and yet so universal that a man born to the year four centuries later, like myself, could still put my signature to it and say, that's exactly how I feel on occasion. The single textual detail that may yield up something close to a new or potentially significant insight comes with the closing couplet, and it is possibly telling, possibly just a coincidence, that in the quarter edition it is set in brackets. Dear friend, it is, as we noted above, the first time in the series that I, William Shakespeare, addressed the young man as dear friend, and it lends the sonnet a particularly authentic and intimate quality. There is no doubt that by now I nurture a great love for this young man and genuinely hold him dear, but it is also clear that no matter how much I love him, he will always only, in inverted commas, be my friend. There is no other higher level of affection or deeper connection that is available in the culture of the day. I cannot call him my partner or my husband. 
Civil partnerships don't exist, let alone equal marriage. And so, whether or not our relationship is already now, or is yet to become, or may never be physically intimate, the absolutely best I can have is you as my dear friend. It is more and better than any lover or love or affair or mistress or probably in the sense of this immense consuming adoration even wife. No, this poem does not make any pronouncements about any of these other relationships in William Shakespeare's life and they do all exist. It does not qualify my love for my lovers and loves, my lust for my mistress or anyone else, or my commitment to my wife. But it does mark the young recipient of these 14 lines out as my dear friend, and very soon I will have reason and need to get incredibly angry with him, to forgive him, and to tell the world that my friend and I are one. And so, in brackets, it may originally have been set, a throwaway form of address to us it may seem, but meaningless. It certainly is not. The fact that the young man is here now, at this point directly called William Shakespeare's dear friend, establishes the bond between them as affirmed, as declared, and as real. And it is only really because the relationship has evolved to this stage that it can withstand what is very soon to test it almost. But fortunately for us, and for Will, and for the young man, not quite to breaking point and beyond. Before that happens, though, there are two sonnets which bring a complete change of tone once again, and much-needed respite from these woes and the travel and the toil for William Shakespeare, and something of a rejuvenation at the hand of the young man. So I do hope you will join me again here on Sonnetcast as we recite, reveal and relive the sonnets of William Shakespeare. Mm -hmm.